I'm Dr. Kimberly Manning. And this is Dr. Ashley McMullen. And you're listening to the Human Doctor Podcast, where we explore the human side of medicine, along with teaching, living, learning, and all things in between. Using the power of storytelling, conversation, and connectedness. Hey, we're two dope academic internal medicine doctors, but we ain't your doctors. So if you perceive anything we say here as medical advice, no, it ain't that. Also, the things we say, they only reflect our brilliant black woman magic mind and not our employers. You could have been anywhere, y'all, but you chose to be here with us and we appreciate you. Let's Let's go. You know, our listeners don't realize that we have a whole like pre-party where we (laughs) pre-game before before we record. (laughs) Ashley has to listen to me like talk about whatever nonsense should not be recorded. (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes that lasts 10 minutes. Sometimes it lasts 60 minutes. (laughs) Yes. I have to let Kimberly get it all out so that I don't have to edit it out later on. (laughs) But I'll leave that to our, to to between us. Yes. Well, I fully appreciate it (laughs) because I'm always game for, you know, what, what's the latest drama going down. Or reality TV show I'm watching. (laughs) You know, you got to have some cognitive rest and there's no cognitive rest like mindless television to me. Yes. Yes. So how are you today? What's up? What's new? What what, what you got on your mind? Yeah, I'm doing okay. I take things a day at a time. You know, I would say I'm I'm in a healing season for myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I'll share that I love is just being able to to go outside immediately into green spaces. Mm -hmm. And Particularly, you know, just being close to Lake Merritt in Oakland, I um, run that loop. It's about, you know, a little over five kilometers and there's just so much wildlife around and the city has commissioned these new kind of informational signs, like all around the lake. So you get to learn something new as you're going through. And I learned recently that Lake Merritt is technically the first wildlife refuge in the Mm. entire country which was back in 1870 is when that was established. Okay, history buff. I know, right? The other thing that I learned was there is a population of Canada geese that hang out on the lake year round, but particularly between May and June, the population explodes. So there's like a thousand of them. And Mm -hmm. there's also a lot of different duck species too and baby ducks. It's just a cool, cool space to kind of be next to. So- you know, I've been avoiding stepping into the realm of birding. I had like not, I'm not quite ready yet, but I do appreciate that last week was actually Black Birders Week. And they had a couple of events um, by okay. the lake in different parks around Oakland. So okay. maybe in my next venture, there's still a lot of trees I need to learn about, but birds are coming mm-hmm. up. Well, shout out to Christian Cooper. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Black people who are into the whole bird birding thing. Um, for those who do not remember who Christian Cooper is, that is the brother that was minding his own black man business mm-hmm. um, in the park and um, asked kindly asked this woman to put her dog on the leash because he was trying to get his bird watch on. Mm-hmm. She called the police and the rest, as they say, is uh, history. I, I forgot her name, something Cooper. What was her first name? Amy Cooper. Amy Cooper, dang, Amy. Yeah, I know. Uh, so I, I heard Amy apologized. And you know what? I believe people 
deserve a little bit of grace and mercy in their life. So I hope she's moved on with her life. However, turns out that Christian Cooper has like a TV show on like <laughs> Nat Geo Wild or something like that. Yeah. He's living his best life. So, you know. Absolutely. I think he, from- he pinned a, a nice op-ed in the New York Times um, not too long ago. Yeah, I would encourage folks to read that and, and hear what he's been up Was it about bird watching or was it about Amy Cooper rolling up on him? I think it was more focused on bird watching. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm so messy. I'm like, oh, girl, what do you say? <laughs> but it was it was actually, I think, three years to the date around the time that that yep, happened. Yep, um, yep. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm sure he made some mention of it. I didn't get a chance to, to finish the article fully, but that reminds mm-hmm. me to go back and read it. Yeah. Well, I am in the season of celebration. Mm. My son, who is a senior, he participated in a leadership program. It was called the Leadership Program in Modern Botillion through our Jack and Jill chapter, one of our local Jack and Jill chapters here in Atlanta. And for those um, who are not familiar with Jack and Jill of America Incorporated, it is um, a national organization of Black mothers who focus on doing cool cultural and community building things for their kids to build them up as leaders. Founded in 1938, since Ashley likes the history. (laughs) And I grew up in the organization in the South Los Angeles chapter. I'm now a member of the Atlanta chapter. And my son was in this really cool event. And so um, it was really awesome. And I'm gonna tell you what was most awesome about it. The whole event centered around uplifting and celebrating these young black men. So 22 black men who are scholars and athletes and philanthropists and servant leaders and musicians and all these things. The spotlight was put on them in a way that the spotlight is normally not put on young black men. Mm. And it was really absolutely a beautiful thing. So um, yeah, we just got to celebrate. I got to wear a sparkly dress and dance with my my son. Oh. Uh, you know, it was it was a really, really good good thing you know because it's just this is the stuff that doesn't really make the news but it was black excellence personified i love that yeah really proud day also you were wearing that dress i saw the photo i mean mom 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 was in the gym because i couldn't be you know i was like these are some of them photos that might get pulled out later i got to be right (laughs) (laughs) but yeah no I, i i mean you know my my husband and i were talking about this um you know as you grow older weight really fluctuates and does a lot of really weird things. Um, Mm -hmm. We're, my husband and I are both a few months apart, so we're both 52. Um, But what we try to focus on is how we feel. Yeah. I I, I am glad to say that I I exercise and do things in a way with intention that leaves me feeling strong. Mm -hmm. And I feel stronger physically now than I've probably felt in most of my adult life. Wow. And I think it's because I'm a little smarter now. I do things a little smarter. I'm not trying to just, oh, let me try to, you know, lose weight and do this. I'm trying to feel good. You know, I felt good. I feel good. I love it. Ladies, gentlemen, and non-binary friends, um, listen to me. Today is a special day for all of you. Mahalia is pulled back in a little ponytail. Looks like she's twisted and in a ponytail. Mm-hmm. But that's not the point. The point is that the Dr. Ashley McMullen is coming in hot and ready to share with you a story from the Ashley archives. Mm. Are y'all ready? Yes, we're ready. (laughs) (laughs) 
So sis, what is the what? Oh man, the the what for this episode is pain. Pain. Mm-hmm. Ooh. I know. We haven't, we haven't used that word before. I know. Yeah, we definitely have not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've been I've been toying with this story for a while. And it starts back my intern year. So my very first year out of medical school as a brand new doctor, um, and very much still getting used to that identity. It was my first month on the wards. So as an intern and on the general medicine units at our safety net hospital, which is San Francisco General. I was coming onto that team with about, I think, eight or nine patients that were assigned specifically to me. So I am the first doctor that is going to get paged whenever there's a question or something going down. I need to know these patients front and back so that I can give updates to my team on a regular basis. So one of the patients that I was introduced to was a young woman who I shared racial concordance with. She was also a queer woman. And for myself, you know, I just probably in the last few months finally come out to myself and was, you know, stepping not only into the fullness of my identity as a doctor, but also as a queer Black woman, kind of fumbling through intern year awkwardly, trying to perform the role of the all-knowing, confident physician. And, you know, I meet this woman who is admitted to my team and, you know, the conversation suddenly feels a little bit easier. I'm suddenly noticing that I'm being seen as I'm seeing her. And she had been in the hospital for, you know, some time actually with a skin and soft tissue infection from Mm. IV drug use. Mm. She was there with her partner and in the mornings I would come in and, you know, I could tell that she was in a great deal of pain and also feeling a little uncomfortable just from, you know, the depth of stigmatization that she had been feeling during her hospital stay, particularly, you know, around getting management for her pain while also having an active substance use disorder. Mm. And, you know, it's interesting to reflect back on this time because it's amazing how much or how quickly we forget, it wasn't that long ago that the opioid crisis wasn't so far in the forefront of people's minds. Mm -hmm. There was no addiction medicine consult service like we have now. People weren't fluent in, you know, Suboxone and methadone or, you know, medical management of opioid use disorders. And so when I look back now, I see what I didn't see at the time, which is this this person was really, really sick with her Mm. use disorder and her use disorder was not being treated. Mm. And I, I have to pass grace on to my attending. I don't think that, you know, the, the people in, in senior roles on our team were also actively thinking about that. At least we weren't talking about it as a team. As far as I remember, it was mostly about treating the infection, trying to manage the pain as best we can. This person was also seeing an outside primary care physician who was prescribing like regular dose, doses of high opioids. Mm. And I established a rapport with this patient. And she had asked me, actually, do you have a clinic? And I was like, actually, I do. I have a clinic here. And she was like, can I switch my primary care to you when I get out of the hospital? And I was like, sure. You know, I I felt an honor, so to speak, that someone saw me and and trusted me. But 
you know, again, I was too green to realize that the depth of seriousness around like what she was going through and what she Mm -hmm. actually needed. So she did eventually get discharged and being an intern, you know, I'm in clinic sporadically. So she got scheduled into our clinic, but she ended up getting scheduled with a different resident. And it was a more seasoned third-year resident. I remember kind of hearing about it on the back end because it was not a good interaction. This and her, her primary doctor had been giving her mm-hmm. um, opiates. Okay. Exactly. And so she came to our clinic kind of expecting, you know, the same management strategy and the resident who saw her, who I will say is someone who's, you know, pretty blunt, effectively said, absolutely not. And put it to her straight that, you know, it is not safe for you to be on these medications. You have a use disorder. The patient reacted really strongly in a way that I recognize now was probably from some deep trauma. So she kind of lashed out and left the visits really, really frustrated, but she actually did come back to see me. Mm. And so I saw her in clinic afterwards. And a lot of the visit was her kind of expounding this experience to me. She was just like, so upset and wounded and, and felt betrayed. And I was in a position of trying to mitigate that damage, but also, you know, I have to to explain, you know, you can't get these pain medications here, but we can try to help you in in other ways. And again, I, at that time was just learning what, what opioid use disorders look like. And I think that, you know, she was in withdrawal also, and probably felt like absolute trash. Mm -hmm. Was she still injecting? You know, it's hard for me to recall in that moment, but I would say most likely yes. Okay. Yeah. Just trying to feel better. Yeah. Mm -hmm, Exactly. I was hoping that, you know, she would at least trust me enough to to keep coming back and and working with us, Um, but she did not come back after that. And for several weeks, I tried calling. A lot of times it would go to voicemail and then eventually the number just stopped working. Mm. And so I went on to my next rotation and throughout the remaining months of intern year. And to be honest, she kind of fell from the recesses of my mind. I was in the, in the grind mode of residency. And after, you know, she was lost to follow up. I hadn't, I didn't think about her for a while. Mm -hmm. I make it to my third year, my last year of residency. This is actually towards the end of my residency. And I was on what's called a swing shift. So Mm -hmm. basically I was coming into the hospital, same hospital, kind of like as an extra set of hands to help out the teams that were there and also be a bridge for admitting patients between like the the daytime call teams and the the nighttime folks who come in and, and cover overnight. The early parts of those shifts are, you know, usually pretty quiet. And out of nowhere, her name just like popped up in my spirit. And mm. And I don't know why, but I just felt compelled to check to see like if she had been seen anywhere else or kind of what had been happening in these intervening years. I started looking to see if she'd had any other admissions. I didn't see anything in our system. So I looked into some of our collaborative hospitals to see if Mm -hmm. she'd been Mm -hmm. there. And, you know, I didn't see anything recent, but what I noted was the years prior to her admission, my intern year, Mm. you know, she had been well-established within Mm. the system. 
during the time that I was in college and in medical school, she was in and out of many outpatient visits, this kind of unexplained chronic pain Mm. and going to different doctors, different specialists. You know, I can just imagine her as a young woman, you know, trying to find answers, Mm. perhaps getting the runaround from Mm. these different doctors who were supposed to have authority. I saw a lot of like different procedures. I saw surgeries, unfortunately, Mm. and then initiation of opioids, Mm. escalating doses, and then eventually cut off, cut off, you know, urine drug screens, and then lost to care. Mm. And then the next thing I did, which, you know, I will say I do not make a routine practice of, And I don't, you know, I wouldn't recommend it for anybody else either, but I decided to just do a Google search just to see something like push me to, to do it. So I typed her name into Google and the first thing that came up was an obituary. I was about to ask you that. Yeah. And when I looked at the date, it was about six months after the last time I saw her. Hmm. Yeah. Mm, 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 mm. And the obituary didn't list the exact cause of death. I'm making an assumption just based on the degree of her illness. But I remember seeing that and it just like it hit me in the gut because I learned so much in those two years. And it just like this person, this woman, this human being spent so much of her life in pain Mm. and seeing all those notes, like looking at her charts and the years that she had spent trying to get help, the system did not deliver for her. Mm. Mm. And that was a really hard pill to swallow. You know, I I think about what might've happened if she had shown up during that admission now when we have so many other experts and we have a fellowship dedicated to addiction medicine and we have more routine knowledge about withdrawal and how to actually treat and not stigmatize these patients because I think that's part of what made it a little bit easier to ease my own discomfort with seeing her suffering was to kind of put it back on her I was just like, well, she's out there using substances, you know, I can't prescribe when, you know, there's not, it's not safe, like where our hands are tied here. Right. But what I learned so poignantly from her and how I try to honor her life and her legacy is to recognize many people do come to us for help first, or they come to help, come to us for help in other seasons of their life that landed them in an admission or in a situation where they're now in a much worse position than they were previously. And it just reminds me of the, the life that she may have lived, you know, as another Black queer woman, I felt like it's important for me to see her and recognize that she existed mm-hmm. and that she had a great sense of humor. Mm. And it was really important for me to be able to even share my queer identity for probably the first time in a professional space. Right. Another takeaway is just like, you don't know the depth of pain that people have been through, but we do have some control over, you know, the pain that we unleash onto other people, particularly from a position of power. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, yeah I wanted to tell that story and, and honor her life, especially during this Pride Month. Uh, I love that so much. We didn't even mention that it's Pride Month. Mm -hmm. Happy Pride. Thank you. Wow. So, you know, when you were telling the story, I was like, I hope she's living. I hope she's living. This is what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. But when I hear that story, I, I realize that we all have these pivot points in our lives that we can think about. We just were to go back and reflect and say, man, I'm so glad I pivoted this way that made all the difference. Or I'm so glad this door opened for me on this day that made such a difference. I'm glad I met this person at this time, right? Mm -hmm. And just like trauma kind of stacks up, you know, so does kind. Mm -hmm. And there was something about the interaction that you had with her and how you met her at a vulnerable time that made her, I don't think she was trying to manipulate you. I think she felt safe mm -hmm. and asked if you would be her doctor. And, and what's really great is that Honestly, in your naivete, you you felt like, oh, wow, yeah, I would like for you to come see me because, you know, with time goes by, people get jaded. They're like, I don't want to no, mm -hmm. I don't want to be your doctor, but you saw it for what it was. And that's hard, right? Because it's while it feels really amazing when you are a part of a pivot that leads to something great. Yeah, I, I appreciate you telling a story of being a part of a pivot that led to something not so great, mm -hmm. right? And I, I don't think that there is a physician who, at least those who reflect regularly, who hasn't had an experience where they're like, man, if just this had happened right here mm -hmm. on this day, this could have really been a game changer. Mm -hmm. um, that's really hard, you know? And the other thing I'm hearing when you tell me that she was in pain, you know, I think about how, what we know now about opiates and what we know as people who work in healthcare, right? when I came home after having Isaiah, the same son I was just talking about, mm -hmm. he was a very big baby, large for gestational age, not a, not a C-section. I was in a lot of pain when I got home and I was given Percocet and I was given Motrin. And um, when I took the Motrin, I could kind of stand at my sink long enough to like clean off a breast pump and, and mm -hmm. sit back on the couch, hobble back to the couch, right? Yeah. But when I took Percocet, first of all, I was not in any more pain and I was slightly euphoric. Mm -hmm. And if you just had a nine pound, two ounce baby and you in pain and you take something that makes you feel euphoric and like you could climb up and down the stairs and do all sorts of things. If I didn't know what I know, I would have I would have only taken that. Mm -hmm. I would have only taken that. I'm like, why would I take this Motrin that slightly, slightly takes the edge off when I got this thing right here that not only takes the pain away, but makes me feel like I can, you know, do the running man, you know? <laughs> um, and I, and I think about that all the time, because I think like if, if we were people who were totally naive to what opiates can do, and we just took what worked because we were in pain, gosh, you know, and not to mention the fact that if once you're already in pain, a lot of sort of emotional things happen too. And that euphoria yes. feels good. Yes, yes. It feels good. And and what I knew when I took Percocet that first and second time after having that baby was I am a person who does not need to take Percocet. <laughs> and I mean, like full full disclosure, I was just like, you know, some people throw up and they can't tolerate it, but I was like, oh, I can tolerate this. 
and I can see what people like about it. Yeah. <laughs> I can <Yeah>. see. <laughs> um, and I'm glad I know what I know. So, mm -hmm. so I, I really feel empathy for her and I can see how she is not any different than either one of us. Absolutely. And, and not to mention the fact I had a good relationship with my doctor. I think if I had gone through those Percocet and asked for another, um, another, you know, refill, I think that my doctor would have given it to me. Yes. And, you know, as we learn more about opiate use disorders, we learn that it does not take long at all mm -hmm. for people to develop first a psychological dependence. And then that leads to that physiologic dependence. And Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's important to note here that exactly as you said, like everybody is different and we are not at a point in our medical knowledge of being able to differentiate well, who's going to be unable to have control over these medications. Yeah. And at what points and at what dose does that does that change for people? Our our understanding of chronic pain has also shifted a lot yeah. in terms of how to best manage it. And particularly for chronic pain syndromes that we're not fully able to explain. Mm -hmm. And this is what she had at a young age too. Mm -hmm. And that's what breaks my heart, especially now as I've come to learning more about the way trauma manifests in the body um, mm. sometimes mm. and, you know, how the pharmaceutical industry has kind of co-opted a lot of our psyche to believe that pills and Western medicine are the answer point blank period. But there's so many different mechanisms to, to heal in ways that cause less harm yeah. and excessive medicalization. I envision her life in so many ways. And, you know, if I met her at a different time, like what I would have done differently to try to give her back her life. Mm. But it's definitely added to some of my resolve to try to live mine as, as best I can. I love that you honored that patient and just thought of ways to honor her going forward by mm -hmm. doing better. Yeah. One of the things that helps me too sometimes is, especially when people are in a lot of pain and have gone through a lot of trauma and it is now manifested in stigmatizing things in the hospital, I try my hardest to say to myself, there was a point when somebody held this person when they were first born and looked at them mm -hmm. and wished the world for them. And then something happened after that, right? Mm -hmm. And whatever happened probably wasn't even in their control. Yeah. Right. Maybe the person was cherished all along and then something happened. But a lot of times there's there are points where people weren't cherished and that just kind of set up more things to happen. And I think we just have to kind of remember that we're not as different from anybody that we're taking care of mm -hmm. or that we're interacting with in the world than we think. I mentioned that piece about being given Percocet after having a baby, because I think that was a pivot point. Whenever I think about how I felt, I, it almost makes me afraid. It mm. makes me afraid for anybody to, you know, give me any sort of really strong pill. Post-op, they're like, do you want a PCA pump? I was like, no way. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Mm. Let me get that Toradol. Let me get that whatever you got going on. But because... Yeah. I don't think I'm one of the people who is wired to just set it and forget it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, that takes a lot of self-awareness and, and knowledge, you know, and a lot of people don't have that benefit. Yep. Yep. It's not as simple as we think. And it's so easy to judge people, but you just, 
you know, one step, one trigger, one decision that somebody else made on your behalf away mm-hmm. from from you being the person who needs just to be extended just a little bit of mercy. Absolutely. And to be met with kindness um, and to be looked at like a human mm-hmm. and not as whatever, you know, derogatory term you have for a person who has found themselves with an opiate use disorder. Yes. Well, sis, yes. dang, <laughs> have to go out and run through a wildflower field after that. Know, right. I think I'll get back on the lake after this. Well, stay away from the poppies. Just <laughs> I couldn't resist, man. Of course. Remember of on course. the Wiz, the poppies? Remember the poppy seed dance on the Wiz movie? Um, Are you too young? Oh, God. Okay. okay. It's just, it's been a minute. I remember watching <laughs> the Wiz literally sitting on the floor of my grandparents' house in Chicago. Okay. Well, so. the poppy, the poppy field ladies, um, they were, they was wilding in the, in the Wiz. <laughs> but uh, for, for our listeners, look, if you, if you were born after, you know, like, 1984. Were you born after 1984, Ashley? Yes. Damn. Okay, that's probably one of those. <laughs> yeah. All right, that's all good. It's all yeah. good. You know, if we had show notes, that would be in it. But oh well. But I, I think that's actually reasonable because you know, <laughs> whatever I was watching, it was like one of those like throwback specials or something. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> well, sis, I really appreciate that story. I think it's a also really good to hear um, this time of year as we're about to start a new academic year. It's a good time for us to, you know, recenter ourselves on humanizing our patients and thinking about how everybody is somebody's end of one. And at some point we have to, you know, see ourselves and our patients. Mm. Well, on that note, I'm gonna go upstairs and uh, fold some laundry. <laughs> yeah, and turn on one of your favorite shows. Yeah, that shall remain nameless. (laughs) (laughs) All right, right, girl. Love you. (laughs) Love you too. That wraps up this week's episode of the Human Doctor Podcast. Special thanks to our favorite brother gastroenterologist, Dr. Chuma Obiname for the beats. Shout out to the Dr. Ashley McMullen for editing and production. Mad love to our podcast family at The Nocturnist and The Clinical Problem Solvers, our med Twitter fam. And especially shout out to all of you, our listeners. Until next week, remember, we see you and you are enough. Holla! Holla.